Yeah, go back there. Come on. All right, so you know what we're talking about. Okay, so we are uh, having this little... It's becoming a bit of a sermon series. I really didn't actually intend it that way because we're going to do one more, a minimum, next week. Talk a little bit more about this, but uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah still, uh, talking about vision and this vision of God that Nehemiah was given and the action he took in, the, in pursuit of that. So start out with a little quote here. Vision is the capacity to create a compelling picture of the desired state of affairs that people, that inspires people to respond, that which is desirable, which could be, should be, that that which is attainable. A godly vision is right for the times, right for the church, right for the people. A godly vision promotes faith rather than fear. A godly vision motivates people into action. A godly vision requires risk-taking. And a godly vision glorifies God, not people. Hey, Cy, turn down the Bluetooth slider there. (coughs) Thanks. So I think we're going to see all this in the life of Nehemiah here. So today we're going to continue this. Last week we talked about Nehemiah, who was in the word of God, knew what God's will was because he read that word and was... In the context of his own life, own situation, convicted that he needed to go to Jerusalem from the capital of Persia, there in Susa, and rebuild the temple walls that were in ruins. We learned that God's vision comes when we are knowledgeable of that will. As it is revealed to us in scripture, we learn that when the vision belongs to God, there is no obstacle that cannot be overcome. Nothing is going to stop it so long as there are faithful followers to pursue that vision. So I'm going to read to you from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 20, although we're going to be jumping kind of around that story. So if you want to get there with me, it's Nehemiah 2, 11 through 20. I went to Jerusalem after staying there three days. I set out during the night with very few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding. By night, I went through the, through the valley gate, toward the jackal gate, and then to the dung gate. Examined the walls of Jerusalem, which would, had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the walls. Finally, I turned back and I re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because I had not yet told them anything and I hadn't said anything to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or anyone who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us no longer be in disgrace. 
I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But then Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it. And they mocked and they ridiculed us. What is it that you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered to them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are servants. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. So you'll remember from last week that Nehemiah was granted all that he needed to start this incredible project to rebuild these temple walls. And he then traveled 1,500 miles from Persia. Uh, and he's got his letters of safe passage. He's got his letter that gives him the authority to take wood out of the royal forests there. He's got his letter that establishes his residency in the city and his governorship of Judah. The task that he's about to undertake is a considerable one. It is, in fact, a task that was attempted before and was unsuccessful. As people in the church, we understand what that is like. People who work in professional jobs, you understand what that can be like. When God gives a vision to the people, there is always a past to contend with. How many times have you been told or heard it said or been guilty of saying in the face of some new work that God is doing within the church, we tried that. That didn't work. Right? Who's heard that one before? Yeah. I've heard it. I've said it. Right? I'm guilty too. And we hear it not just at church, but in our jobs. You who have worked out in the workforce, you come into a new job. You've got some good ideas. You've been there about a year and you see things that could be done a little smoother. So you bring it up and you're just certain that your boss is going to be, hey, way to go. We appreciate the novel thought. Revitalizing our processes. Is that what you hear? No. What you hear is, that's not how we do it here. Or we tried that and it didn't work. We even say it to ourselves. You may find the determination to make a positive change in your, in your lifestyle. But there's a voice in the back of your head reminding you that you tried to lose weight. You tried to exercise more. You tried to read more, watch less TV or whatever a few years back. And you were unsuccessful. And the older you get, the more of those voices you have, I'm finding out. So... The books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther kind of work together. They're a, they're a story together, three books of the Bible. They tell the story of the post-exile experiences of the Israelites. From the you know, time that Babylon fell, you know, we were just a quick, quick Bible history lesson. You remember that the, the Israelites were there in Israel and... The, they were bad. The Israelites were 
had evil kings and were in bad shape. And God said enough. And he, he brought the Babylonians in and, and dispersed them across the Middle East. Uh, basically just took away Israel and Judah as functioning nations the, completely. The Babylonian Empire fell. The Persian Empire rose to power. And that's where you kind of pick up the story of, of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther in that Persian Empire when the Israelites are spread across the land. So about 90 years before Nehemiah takes his trip to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, an attempt was made to do this. During the, king, the rule of King Cyrus, the Persian King Cyrus, a group of Jewish nationals returned to Jerusalem during the time of the prophet Ezra. And they were permitted to rebuild the primary internal uh, temple there, but they were forbidden from building the fortified walls after the Samaritan leaders convinced Cyrus that it would be an affront to his rule. So you can read about it in Ezra chapter 4 if you want to. Uh, they went there to do it. The, the leaders of those city-states that were there in Jerusalem all got together. They penned a letter. They sent it to Cyrus. And they said, you don't want this king. You don't want these people rebuilding this wall. It's bad for you. And he said, yeah, that makes sense. No wall. Whatever they've started, tear it down. We're not doing that. So there were other unsuccessful attempts in the, in the median time there uh, that were made over the years. With the most recent one occurring just 13 years prior. So 13 years prior to Nehemiah traveling to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple walls. There was another attempt that was pretty close to being successful. And it was the destruction of this most recent attempt that was shared with Nehemiah in chapter 1. Remember, his brother comes to him, Hanani comes to him and says, hey, the temple walls are in ruin. Well, they, he, he had expected that they were being fixed and, and they were in ruin. In fact, it was Artaxerxes himself who approved the demolition of the project 13 years earlier and now is approving it in Nehemiah. So what do we make of all this? First, this story stands as a reminder that we, it's really not our place to assign value judgments on the work of God. Right? Right? When we call a ministry effort successful or unsuccessful, we have to be careful. If we can identify some error in our discernment or our motivation or our faithfulness, then we may rightly say that we were not working in concert with God's vision and will and there was a problem there. However, Sometimes things don't go the way we'd like them to go simply because in God's will and God's vision, the time was not right. So these people who were trying to rebuild the wall and failed, were they failures? Not for me to say. Maybe that all had to happen just that way so that Nehemiah in his day could have the success he had when the time was right. The point is that God uses faithful action of his followers to achieve his will. It is not our part to say what success looks like in every situation. Second, this reminds us that just because an idea or a ministry was not successful the first time, doesn't mean 
that we do not keep faithfully striving for God's will and vision, right? What if the Israelites had said, well, we tried to build the wall. It didn't work. No wall. We won't try that anymore. Well, that would have been a mess. Ministry to reach the lost is never a bad idea. There's never a bad time to not try that. Ministries to encourage greater discipleship, worship, deepening of connections between believers is never a bad idea. These things are God's will for us and for every church. If we refuse to take bold steps of faithful action because something didn't work before, we are denying God's will and vision and we've lost our way. So back to our story. When Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he leaves his armed escort behind. He heads into the city at night. And scripture uh, makes this detailed account of what he finds there as he rides his horse around the ruined walls. Nehemiah, one of the great things about him is his detail, right? I I really wonder what it was about him that made him want to write the way he wrote. Because he just recorded every little thing, a very detail-oriented leader. And as he's dry, you know, riding around, he makes note of all the work that needs to be done. Did he know every bit of every element of the plan? No. He probably was not able to discern that after a midnight stroll. But the detail of his account makes it clear that he had the information he required to communicate that vision with the Israelites within the city. He gathers them together and he tells them this from our reading. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Of course, when the people of God step up and take bold action to pursue God's vision, the opposition takes notice. And this happened immediately for them. Uh, In in the case of Nehemiah, there are two leaders living within uh, Judah that are not keen on his plan to rebuild the walls. There's actually several of them. Um, so you have Sanballat, who is probably just angry because he's named Sanballat. I mean, that's a terrible name. I don't care who you are. Tobiah was another one. And Geshem. And so these guys together, they are governors, right? So in, in the Persian Empire, you have governors, local governors. None of them get territory that's too big for obvious reasons, but they're appointed to be uh, overseers of the land that they're in. Usually it's a city with its outlying properties and uh, they're, they're loyal to the king while also looking to enrich themselves. This was kind of the, the way that Persian peace was kept. And these guys together represent this power conglomerate that is, in biblical history called the Trans-Euphrates, because they're up and down the Euphrates River. A revitalized Israel was not in their best interest. In fact, it was these men and their predecessors who had successfully petitioned King Artaxerxes to not build that wall. 
These are the same guys. They ridiculed the efforts of the Israelites. And as the Israelites worked, the leaders of the trans-Euphrates shouted at them saying, what are those feeble Jews doing? The work that they work as though they're going to rebuild these walls in a day. Look, the craftsmanship is so poor that even a fox climbing over the walls would knock it down. And what's kind of interesting is there's some truth to this. I mean, a fox would knock it down. But when these were compared to the few sections that were left standing, the craftsmanship was noticeably poorer. And we'll talk about that probably a little bit next Sunday as to why that was. But, you know, so nothing ever hurts more than when somebody's needling you for something that there's some truth there. So they're getting this from these guys, but they don't stop. As the Israelites continued, the opposition goes from being obnoxious and bullying to violent. Soon Nehemiah instructs the Israelites that half of them are to be building and the other half are to be holding spears to fend off an attack. And friends, we know that there is an expectation for churches in this country, right? We know that. The doctrine of separation of church and state, which was proposed to keep the state from establishing a national church, like the Church of England, has morphed over time to mean separation of church and society at large. People are okay with the existence of church so long as we stay in our lane, stay in our building, stay to ourselves and out of their lives. Then it's okay. If they want us, they figure they know where to find us. So it was with the Israelites. A powerless, downtrodden, pushed around Jewish people, that was fine for the trans-Euphrates leaders. But the minute they stepped out of their approved box, they became a target. Are we ready to become a target? If we are truly ready to pursue the vision of the church with bold action, One of the first indicators that we're on the right track is there will be those who will want to stop us. Can we withstand the opposition? As we make moves to wake up this sleeping generation, it will garner attention. Some of it will be positive. The attention of those who we bring to Jesus and there will be those who support this. Some of it will be negative thinking that we are stepping outside of the bounds of what a respectable church ought to be. Some people might think we've just gone nuts. Let's take our lead from Jeremiah. He had his letter of authority from King Artaxerxes. He had his position of governor. He had his armed escorts. But when the opposition leaders of who accused Nehemiah of opposing the will of the king, when they said to them, are you against the king, Nehemiah? This was what he said. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic rights to it. 
Notice what he says. Notice what he doesn't say. When we take action to pursue the will and vision of God in our church, we operate under God's authority. Those letters don't matter anymore because he's got where he needs to be by God's will. The army that he came with, it doesn't matter anymore. That's not what's protecting him here. He knows that. He acknowledges that. Nehemiah could have given other reasons why these men should not oppose him that might have been more persuasive. But he knew that this project was not going to succeed because Artaxerxes approved it. It would succeed because it was God's will. Nehemiah trusted that when God is in the vision, the outcome is secure. Any action that we take as a church is empowered by God's authority if his will is in it. Will we plan as Nehemiah did? Or we will plan as Nehemiah did. We will communicate the vision as Nehemiah did. But the success belongs to God. The glory belongs to God. He does not share his glory. The wall would be built because God ordained it so. We can step out in confidence knowing that God works for us in the same way when we are working in his will. So do we plan? Yes. Do we strategize? Yes. Do we communicate? Yes. But then it's time to get busy building that wall. Next week, we're going to probably, I say probably, conclude this sermon series with a look at Nehemiah chapter 3. It's a wonderful uh, chapter that most commentaries skip over. In fact, Chuck Swindoll, who I love, in his commentary on Nehemiah, disregarded this chapter altogether. He didn't even address it. He went one, two, four, and then (laughs) from there. And you'll see why. But I think it's one of the most important parts of the whole story. And if up to now you've been wondering just what exactly is our vision then? What's our vision here at Rosewood? We're going to talk about that too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again give you thanks and praise for the mighty example of Nehemiah. We marvel at the way that the scripture speaks to us. Your word made known to us over time and space, breathing life into your church once more. Lord, let us cling to what we learn here, what we learn from this this man, what we learn from the people that he leads, how they respond, where they put their faith, where they put their hope. Father, we would do well to follow their lead, to emulate them in all these ways as we seek to rebuild the proverbial walls within this community. Walls where people will be able to learn about Jesus Christ. Walls where within they will know the safety of being loved by the God who created them. Who will be called first to repentance and then to new life. Lord, we want to build this. We want to be the hands that craft this in our time and our community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.